0: Well, you gotta figure out what you're passionate about. That yeah. that, is, that is that is a hard thing to do. It yeah. is,
1: but. I wanna be one of those passionate people who converts others to study <laughs> to this. in Central Asia.
2: It was like freshman year, I had this grad student um, for geography who just let us in like how dangerous it is for environmental activists in Latin America. And I was like, interesting. Then I had to take two more classes about it. And I was like, now I've wasted six credit hours. <laughs>
1: Hi, this is Lauren. And this is Milana. We are interviewing Dr. Ola Onu And her doctoral
2: student, Emma Mateo. Today we're going to be talking about uh, Ukraine a little bit, um, about Euromaidan, which was in uh, 2013, 2014. And I want to end on the elephant in the room with uh, Ukraine and y'all's reactions to the presidential election, because I don't think that this interview <laughs> would be fulfilled if we didn't necessarily right. touch on that. <laughs>
3: You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas
2: at Austin. So I guess the first thing that I want to talk to you guys about is how you guys came to be involved in researching Ukraine. Here, we're always asked about how, like, why Ukraine. Um, And so I want to hear, I guess, how you guys came to be where you are now.
0: All right. Well, first of all, thanks for having us. It's really lovely to be here with you. And Emma, do you want to start?
3: Yeah. So um, my academic career has come about via a series of accidents, (laughs) essentially. Um, I got interested in Russian in high school because we had some French teachers in my state school, which I think is public school here, right, Mm -hmm. Um, who also taught Russian. So I got interested in Russian and I was studying Russian language and literature along with French at the University of Cambridge. And in my second year, there was an option to take a like a, a course on um, Ukrainian language and literature. And I nearly didn't take it. I think I nearly took Portuguese or oh, really? something like that. Yeah, like you something could, really random. I still could have
0: supervised you. Yeah. Yourself, but yeah.
3: <laughs> um, and actually, I, I have not I think I've admitted this to you, but I actually had a dream <laughs> that I studied Ukrainian. <laughs> and then I woke up and I was like, okay, I'll do Ukrainian now. And I, I signed up for Ukrainian and um, there's a small like Ukrainian studies kind of center. Um, in within like Slavic studies at Cambridge. And um, it was a really cool class. It was really interesting. The teachers were very passionate. Um, this is back in 2013 to 2012 to 2013. Um, so people were not as interested in Ukraine as they are now post-2013-14. Well, well, some people were. <laughs> um, but a lot of people were like, What are you doing? <laughs> Why? So I did this course, I really enjoyed it. I got pretty good grades. Um, and then I went on my year abroad to Russia. Um, And I was living in quite a small community. I was doing volunteering work with children. And then all these things started to happen in Ukraine. And all of a sudden I was hearing the Russian perspective on this. I was hearing like what Western media was saying about it as much as I could get with like the internet connection in (laughs) the Kaluga oblast. Um, And I also had like a bit of an idea now of like Ukrainian identity and culture and history. I was like, this is interesting. (laughs) Like there doesn't seem to be very many people who understand very well what's what's going on here, mm-hmm. at least who are in like the mainstream media space. Um, yeah, and things continue to develop and all of a sudden I had this impression that this this country that I was fascinated with that not so many people seemed interested in a few months ago was incredibly important. Um, yeah, and I went back and in my final year I in my dissertation on documentary film of Yoramay Dan, because I was doing language and literature. I couldn't exactly go and all of a sudden do like study protest. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so that was... That was really got me what we, got me involved. Um, I loved writing my dissertation so much at quite a difficult time in my life personally that I was like, oh, maybe if I love it this much, I should study some more. So I signed up for my master's program after like a year out um, and I did an interdisciplinary master's and I still focused on Ukraine. I focused on protest. I did some field work about slogans and symbols of the Euromaidan. I went to three cities in Ukraine. Yeah, and I I just really enjoyed it and I just kept going. So now... I'm in my PhD. Nice.
0: Wow. So, what about you? <laughs> it would only be weird about mentioning the dream if, like, I was in it no. or something else. <laughs> was in it, you know. But um, um, obviously, very different story yeah. of how I came. So, I am Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm an ethnic Ukrainian born in Poland. Um, and initially, when my parents were uh, young and active in Poland, they thought there will be no end to communism. Um, and you know, I. Could tell you crazy stories about the fact that our apartment, which was opposite to the main military prison in Poland, was the main place for dropping off and picking up of some of the Solidarność Bibua propaganda, for the Solidarność activists. I was sleeping in my cot. So you can say that from a very early age, I was surrounded by activists doing all sorts of crazy things. Um, And my mom would make soup for everyone. But yeah, and then they moved to Toronto, and I was part of the Ukrainian-Canadian community there uh, growing up. Um, My parents then moved back to Ukraine. So my life was connected to Ukraine always. I was Ukrainian. Although my father's in the contemporary art community, it's very different from the academic community. Um, and I go to university and I study international development. I studied international development of Latin America. Um, I knew I was going to do something in politics, something about activism. I was obsessed with Latin America. I thought maybe I will be working you know, in some field somewhere or some favela somewhere with my child strapped to me doing this (laughs) international development work. And then I, yeah, I worked for the UNDP um, in New York with the regional Latin America and Caribbean program. And I went to the London School of Economics to study comparative politics of Latin America. Now we're in 2004 and in my home country, and I'm obsessed with protest by this time already, by the way and definitely going to be looking at protests somewhere in Brazil or in Argentina or somewhere like this. And then in my home country, there is a mass protest. And my friends that I've known since childhood join this protest. And I go to observe it as an international observer. And it is one of those moments where, you know, okay, I need to understand why one million ordinary citizens You know, the people who may or may not pay their taxes, the people who may or may not vote, you know, whoever was sitting with you at your last Thanksgiving dinner, most of those people turned out to the streets, right?
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Are. Why? What motivates them? And I get chills whenever I think about it. You go, if you were protesting in 2004, the threat of repression in Ukraine, the threat of repression is high. You are going with your children, your grandparent, and you are potentially risking your life. Mm-hmm. So you're sitting there with that one million people and you're thinking to yourself, what, what is this all about? And then all of a sudden, okay, this is how, what I'm going to commit my life to. It's one of those moments, you're standing there surrounded by these people. And you're like, okay, I don't understand. I understand emotionally, but I don't understand intellectually what's happening. And I decided to compare Different uh, types of mobilization in uh, first in Brazil and Ukraine when it came to local grannies and independent mobilizations, and then mass protest, right? And I already was studying mass protest in Brazil and Argentina, so Ukraine came back to me, kind of found Mm -hmm. me through a personal experience. Um, So everyone assumes that I was always studying. Ukraine somehow came to Latin America, but it was <laughs> mm-hmm. the very opposite thing. I saw the things that were happening in Latin America were also happening in Eastern Europe, but for some reason nobody was talking about it. And somebody, for some reason, nobody was connecting the dots that these processes are the same. And yeah, and obviously since then I've studied Ukraine a lot and I've studied Argentina a lot, but still t- I will I am still fascinated with why people protest. Those moments of mass mobilization. So it's not about the country; it's about the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And every single time I see it, it takes my breath away. Mm -hmm. You can't imagine, you know. The next, if tomorrow two million people showed up on the streets of Texas, yeah, that would take your breath Mm -hmm. away, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about like the protest culture, um, what the protest culture in Ukraine is about, because. To us, um, Lauren and I are working on a project on Ukraine. And as part of that, we were looking at different influencers on Facebook and what topics they were talking about, um, about Ukrainian politics. And one thing that really surprised us was that Ukrainian political culture and protest culture seems quite different than the one in the United States, because often um, what candidates will do is... Um, rent rent people, so they will pay people to be sort of fake protesters or um, attendance of like a fake or fake attendance of a rally, with even if they don't really believe in the cause or really know what it's actually about. So, um, could you say more about like
0: how what protest culture in Ukraine looks like? Okay, so there's a few things that we need to talk about here. So. The the history of contentious politics in Ukraine mm-hmm. is vast, and I think that is also something I'm waiting for a historian to study this. <laughs> Do you know any young historians <laughs> interested? Because there's a, this is something understudied, and you know I wrote very briefly about it in my book. But the thing is, since about the late 50s and 60s and onwards, activism in Ukraine is quite a potent thing, mm-hmm. and it's really not known very well. But there were more dissidents per capita in Ukraine than any other Soviet republic. So there is this spirit of contention in Ukraine that people really don't know about. And in the 70s, at the when the beginnings of the human internationalist human rights movement and the Helsinki groups and this kind of thing, there's a huge surge of this movement in Kharkiv in Ukraine. So Kharkiv is a particularly interesting city for um, non nationalist but pro democratic pro-human rights type of mobilization and contention. And then the labor union movements, all the kind of things that you might have read about in places like Poland also are happening in Ukraine, but people don't know about it. The difference between the Czech Republic and Poland and Ukraine in the 80s is that most Ukrainian dissidents actually are either in camps in Siberia, typically still protesting hunger strikes where they're protest of choice. And some people obviously died from that. And others were in psychiatric wards. A lot of dissidents were imprisoned, and activists were imprisoned in psychiatric wards. And a lot of the Soviet-era psychiatric experimentation was done on activists and dissidents. So they were not freed from their camps, prisons, et cetera, until the very late 80s. Whereas in Poland, they were more people were actually, they went underground, but they weren't necessarily all in prison. So they were not active in that mid-80s period. And in the 90s, you have a first mass protest the, um, with the transition. It's called the student hunger strikes, the revolution on the granite, which is the first mass protest in, in the Maidan for the first time. And that's our first Maidan.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, a
0: few yeah. minutes ago you said the Maidan. Yeah. So I would never call the last Maidan the Maidan. Yeah. Because the first Maidan was in you know 90, 91 and you have well, several Maidans at that time, Mm -hmm. and then you have something called later on the Ukraine without Kuchma, Ukraine bez Kuchmy, the Ukraine without Kuchma, Maidans. Mm -hmm. That was uh, happening um, against Kuchma, and then a few years later, you have the Orange Revolution. And that's the third Maidan, right, the Orange Revolution, and then Mm -hmm. the one that, you all know a little bit better. Is see how I said y'all? You all, <laughs> I, I'm getting there. I said, I said you all, but it's going. It's going to happen the by Texas the end of this is trip, coming. and y'all is going to come out. And the 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 last Maidan is either the fourth or fifth Maidan, depending on uh-huh. how you count these things. So that's important. Mm-hmm. Strong history of protest. Strong history of civic engagement that has nothing to do with necessarily parties buying protesters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, this is. You know, a post-Soviet, but not only across Latin America, this happens as well. Um, The paying for, typically it's offering a day trip to the capital, right? Mm -hmm. For some people living elsewhere, that could be a very attractive thing. Um, Oftentimes, these are members of parties already, but Mm -hmm. not always. And that is a phenomenon that has happened not only in Eastern Europe, um, but that happens in France, that happens in actually most recently it was happening in England and definitely happens all across all of Latin America. I wouldn't say that is the dominant protest type Mm -hmm. in Ukraine and I think for those people who come to Ukraine only when we see those big flashes then they don't really understand the context. Um, They might focus on some things and on others but the history of—I don't know if it's right to call it authentic or not, because I don't know if that—I don't know if I'm comfortable with that—but there's a long history of politics, of contention and protest that is driven by ordinary citizens and activists. Um, that is Nancy Bermeo would say; um, she wrote a book about this. There are ordinary people who do extraordinary things, yeah. right? That's more, I think, the story of Ukrainian protest. Um, do you want to add something to that?
3: Yeah, I think you do get these kind of rent protest protester things, right? That is not—it's not the case that that is not happening. Yeah, it definitely um, happens. Yeah, it, I think that's the thing that, for some reason, that draws people attention. People pick up on that as like, oh, corruption. That fits in with like our idea of the post-Soviet mm-hmm. space and Ukraine and all these things we hear about oligarchs. Um, but yeah, you're right. People know a lot less about the long history of protest. Um, I think it's important to address this, because otherwise, if you just have an idea about the Ukrainian culture of protest being um, rent a protester, then that can feed into narratives about you my dad and about mm-hmm. who were these people? Why were they there? To what extent were they authentic? Um, so, yeah. And
0: to be fair, whenever the politicians try to just do that, they cannot create a mass protest. Mm-hmm. They do not even no matter how many millions of euros, dollars, whatever it is, rubles, they're trying to throw at the situation. They cannot bring that many people out into the streets. Um, So, and they, you know, in 2004, they were able to like print out all the flags, you know, the orange flags or or the yellow flags or black flags, but they weren't able to bring that many. There's only so many buses you can coordinate, right? Mm -hmm. Um, At some point, people just en masse People do a way better job coordinating themselves than some of these political parties do as well. Um, but actually, some of the, when you're talking about some of the influencers, I have a feeling I might know some of them. And they try to run a variety or sponsor or help a variety of anti poroshenko protests mm-hmm. in recent. So we are talking about the same people. <laughs> there, there
1: are a few. I think what
2: was, like, most interesting is so there was, like, so much discussion about this rented protester yeah. and, like, how, like, people should participate to kind of, I guess, I don't know a polite way to say it, um, but, like, screw the system in ways. But it's, like, to delegitimize kind of people have shown out in the past i feel like it was like this weird movement yeah. there's also interesting conspiracy theories which is why yesterday was mm-hmm. so interesting is the influencers i think were like coming up with the wild to us it's the wildest like conspiracy theories about these protesters but i think it's like a weird delegitimization of those who are involved cuz i feel like you guys are like you can't you, you can't bring that many people out it, that don't have some like skin in the game. I think the only people who can manage to do that are the Russians can do it pretty well with, I guess, establishment youth camps and mm. things like that. But
3: yeah. But then if you look at the threat of oppression, the, yeah. the rows and rows and rows towards the end, like there's only so much money you can pay people to risk yeah. their lives. Right. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. Sorry. I. Even the even the youth camps and this kind of stuff, yeah. the youth movements, it, it all has its limits, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the Soviet and communist era showed that, right? Those things are reproductions of what was happening in the past. Um, it all has its limits. Um, but the recent anti-Poroshenko, anti-corruption protests, which of, you know, one of the oddest figures in recent Ukrainian politics, Saakashvili, the former president <laughs> of Georgia, was the face of. A lot of the people involved in those protests, organizing this protest, who may or may not be considered influencers, and I know and respect extensively, I mean, I personally know them and respect them very much, they did some really weird things by joining that protest. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was also this weird thing of taking pictures of the protests to make them look larger than they are. And I wrote about this in a blog because I said, guys, you were literally the people who were critiquing the Yanukovych regime in 2014 for taking pictures of your protests to make them smaller than they are, <laughs> right? You can't be now trying to make your protests look bigger when they aren't mm-hmm. that big. Either you're on the right side of history or you're not in this yeah. case. So that was surprising. Yeah. And there was a little bit of a "rent of protester thing happening there too with yeah. the Timoshenko and Saakashvili camps. And that, that I felt was weird, right? Yeah. Um, But the thing is, when it comes to the various activist networks and the ordinary citizens and the several waves of youth um, that have stood up to various uh, versions of Ukrainian government, you know, I think one over and again, the Ukrainian population has shown there's only so far we'll let you go. Yeah. And then we'll either vote you out or, you know, we will stand in the street until you kill a hundred of us. Yeah. Like, this is you know incredible but you know whether the people were 50, 40, 20 they were willing to die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's making sandwiches, bringing yeah. bringing random mm-hmm. things then finally when you know during the most violent days of the Yevromaidan, when they were taking the injured people first to the Mihailivsky subor, the um, monastery they were protecting them and then trying to take them to different hospitals and emergency rooms Mm. all across the city, which are in more suburban areas. Um, We call them the sleeping regions or Spaniereone. Um, People who weren't involved in the protests in the city center, who were just going about their business in the suburbs, they heard that the protesters who are injured are being taken to their local hospitals. And they were worried that the special forces were gonna come there and try to take them. And so people just encircled the hospital, for instance. Like, imagine just coming out of your apartment building and calling all your neighbors, and they held hands and encircled the hospital, right? Those were not the protesters. Those were not Mm -hmm. the people that were being radical. Mm -hmm. Those were moms and pops and whoever else was out there just decided, okay, we're now going to protect the protesters. Mm -hmm. I mean, that you you can't pay for that. That's really – that's – I mean that's you get emotional because that's really incredible what people were doing, yeah. yeah
3: there's really when you look at some of the creativity and the improvisation and innovation that was taking place during the Euromaidan, it's so interesting when i was i was i spoke to a lot of people about slogans and symbolism during my master's field work, and it was very important to, to the pro- to the participants to emphasize to me that Look! Look at how creative people were. Look at all these images. Look at all these pictures. Look at all these slogans and plays on words. Like we're grassroots. You walked over to the anti-Maidan. They had their Russian flags, and that was it. Like, look at all of this art and design and creativity that that we have. Um, it was, yeah, that that was that that was kind of their point. Like these. Look at them. They're being paid. They just have their flags. They've been given. Mm-hmm. This is the protesters' point of view. And over here, we're here. Because we want to be, and we're creating and we're improvising, and we're yeah, we're creating as we go along,
2: yeah, I think that's i I mean we've talked about it, and of course we're somewhat disconnected from we haven't been to like Ukraine yet, but I think that's going to be one of the cool things is we get to draw this connection and talk to people. Who were a part of it because we get to read about it as much, but Mm -hmm. you don't have that personal connection until you're there. And I feel like these mass mobilization, I think the closest thing that we've had here in the United States was probably that where we've all mobilized was probably the Women's March Mm -hmm. in January of 2016. When was that, 2017 or 2016? After the Trump election. Mm -hmm. And like being with so many people who are like-minded, there's a power and then it just like spreads. It's kind of like those hope, because we talk... In the context of Eastern Europe, everyone's so depressed, especially in academia here, because they look at Ukraine, or not Ukraine, they look at Hungary and Poland, and they're like, there's a backsliding of democracy. Mm -hmm. But I think when we look at Ukraine and listening to you guys look at it, is we don't see a backsliding. We see kind of this hope that's being kind of buried because underneath this context of
0: where Hungary is
2: going.
0: (laughs) Well, you see, I mean, you see struggles everywhere. I mean, there's currently, it's definitely not a one-way one road, one direction, right? There's back and forth mm. in Ukraine and we've seen different moments. In Poland, though, also people several times, a mass protest in 2016, and there's several recent uh, you know, episodes where there was attempts to change uh, aspects of the constitution and things around mm-hmm. judges. And people also, um, they have a response when they think there's a limit. Of mm-hmm. course, not everyone in society. Yeah. Um, but I, th- I, I, I think that it's, you know, of course, and not everyone in Ukraine protests. Mm-hmm. This is not, you know, not everyone was a supporter of the Euromaidan. This is also important. People have different visions of what Ukraine should look like. Um, different citizens have different views on this. Though, it is um, for the first time in 2014, 13, um, from the first night of the protests, it was an all-regional protest, mm-hmm. and so it was happening across. It's much smaller in various parts of the East and South, but it was happening in those places from the very beginning. And that certainly does not represent the majority of the populations in those mm-hmm. places. But I think people who did participate in those events, even in the very small ones, or people even who saw the, and, and felt positively towards them, they experienced what you were saying about the, yeah. the Women's March, where you feel this moment of intense solidarity with a mass group of people. Right. And if you think at the most intense periods of the Maidan, they would sing the national anthem on the hour. And there's something that, you know, I now cannot get through an entire national anthem without crying because I think of that moment. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, these moments can be incredibly influential in people's lives. And hopefully they bring on positive change in other aspects of life. And, like, the stuff that you guys are studying with your project, the youth engagement, I think youth engagement after the Ramadan is very interesting, and that m- more youth are engaged and in different things, mm-hmm. right, in different ways, as you guys were presenting to us yesterday. They have really interesting research, too, we know about <laughs> yeah. the research. But you know, that might, maybe, I don't know, that's a hypothesis, maybe that's an outcome of the Ramadan, right? Mm-hmm. They maybe weren't able to participate in it, but they saw it. Yeah. It influenced them and they see you can change things yeah. as an ordinary citizen. That's cool. Yeah. Right? And I'm sure there's lots of little girls and boys who saw the women's march and was like that's cool. Yeah. I want a pink hat. Yeah, same right?
2: <laughs> We're the product of I think as children we kind of exclude them in society because we don't think they're mature enough or ready enough to like be involved in political action movements. But we definitely absorb it, and then I think as we grow older, we we reflect it. I think we underestimate kind of the role that kids can have. There's Mm -hmm. the I think what was what we talked about because we all watched Winter on Fire. Yeah, the mm-hmm. the documentary that all Americans watch on Ukraine, yeah. the, the Euromaidan, um, and there's the young child that they portray. Not how old was he? Like
0: seven? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah,
2: and it's kind of like that's when you realize that children have very strong opinions. Yeah. And they like they can't be excluded from this discussion, which I think is so interesting because you guys. When you look at, I guess, what brought people together is, I thought what was most stunning in what you talked about yesterday and with the photo as well, is that this wasn't a generational necessary. You can't just put Euromaidan within like the yeah. context of one generation. It mobilized everyone. And I think that was so powerful and so incredible to see out of your research. So
0: yeah, Oksana, the amazing protester. Yeah. Well. That, I thought the grandparents were the most badass protesters <laughs> because, and they would say things like, "I am here every day, all day. When they, when my grandchildren have to go to work or school, I will be here. I will be the guardian because I let them down before I let us get to this place. So the sense of responsibility that we are where we are today because we didn't do our job. So now we're going to guard the protest space until they can come back after work and yeah. school to, you know, because mm-hmm. the students every single evening around." It was around 4 p.m. or 5 p.m. The students would come from all their universities together and join the protesters. And people would come from work, obviously, mm-hmm. at that time. Um, but yeah, the, you know, kids, people brought their kids, yeah. especially on the, mm-hmm. the Sunday protests with the Viches that were happening every single Sunday. That's, that, was like, that was a full family affair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there are definitely, you know, some newborns and toddlers that lived to the revolution. Yeah. They might not know it yet. <laughs> yeah. But...
3: And I think some seeds would were plant would probably have been planted for the younger children. It'll be interesting to see how that develops. Although this is on a different topic, but if you want to talk about children engagement, look at what's happening with the school strikes. Yeah. At the moment. That's incredibly oh. that's incredibly interesting. Um
2: yeah. Yeah, were you referencing the change. Yeah, the climate the climate change. The climate yeah. change. Oh. yeah. I
3: don't know how big that is in the States, but in the UK there's the, that's yeah. and in the in Europe that's been really interesting in
2: recent weeks. It brings in <clears> I mean, talking about youth engagement, I in Europe particularly has been optimistic because I feel like here we don't necessarily have that. We tried to have the strikes and we just, it's hard to rally students mm-hmm. here. But I think there's also like a, we have a weird cultural thing against climate change. <laughs> there have been some really
0: impressive <laughs> impressive recent youth activism. I mean, Black Lives Matter on campuses, that yes. has been really impressive Me Too movement on campuses. Mm-hmm. Um, also a post, uh, what was the school, um, shooting
2: parkland? oh yeah parkland
0: yeah, exactly. I mean yeah. that uh, that may or may not resonate with everyone but that was impressive what they did yeah. as well so I think don't sell yourself short <laughs> um, uh, because it's really easy I mean every generation to look to other generations and think oh like you know I can look to the 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 velvet revolutions of eight and nine that my parents were participating mm-hmm. in, and be like oh we're nowhere near as cool as that yeah. right so I'm the orange revolution generation and a lot of my friends got together in those tents <laughs> and then they were, their children may have been the result of that getting together. There, been, there were some marriages from the, the Orange it's probably Revolution. probably the coolest conception. Yeah, quite <laughs> but, literally, but, Children of the Revolution. Know, well, I don't know. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not to me, I don't mean that necessarily. I mean, they got to, I, maybe I said that in the wrong way, but they met each other on the protest. They fell in love. They were spending times in tents. I'm not, I'm not assuming anything about what they may have done in those months. But oh, we got off topic. That's not where we – but they met on a protest, and then yeah. they had children. And then the, their children might think, oh, we're, we're no way as cool as the Orange Revolution group. And then they yeah. go and do their own thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, if you're inspired and you feel like you want to engage, then do it. Yeah. Um, but I think this cross gener cross generational stuff is neat, mm-hmm. um, and looking towards or older generations because they might have experience in mm-hmm. other things, mm-hmm. and then youth might you know know how to tweet about it better. Also, <laughs> I remember that there was this situation where one older protester was trying to understand mm-hmm. how the Twitter how the Twitter works. <laughs> yeah. um, and you know there's different things we all bring to the table of mobilization. Yeah, um, and the other thing is this Mm -hmm. cross-regional and bringing youth and activists that are may or may not be young from different regions around the world and exchanging ideas and experiences Mm -hmm. of mobilization because that can be also very as you said it it could bring up some very positive feelings oh you guys did that cool maybe we'll try that
2: Also brought up earlier that you are incredibly involved in Latin American studies, um, to say the least. Mm-hmm. But I guess, have you observed the same thing that we you saw with Euromaidan in Argentina or Brazil? Um, mm-hmm. I guess, were the trends similar? And can we draw parallels, I guess, between these, I don't want to say societies in transition, but I guess kind of these transition periods between governmental movements or political movements?
0: I think so... It's funny because in Eastern Europe, we, call, we talk about transition as this never-ending thing. Mm-hmm. If all these countries are in constant transition, whereas Latin Americanists would focus only on the years of the elections as the transition period. Mm-hmm. But they're all countries where democratization is ongoing, and maybe democracy has not been consolidated, right? So there's mm-hmm. that similarity is there. But when it comes to protest, I mean, the processes of protest... So how people are, why people are motivated to join a protest and how people are mobilized to join a protest are very similar. Mm-hmm. And what I found when I was studying the Argentinazo, which is the 2001 mass protests on the 19th and 20th of December, 2001 in Argentina during an economic crisis, I was expecting everyone to tell me it's the economy. It's the economy. It was the economy in, And then I went there and no one was telling me that it was the economy. Everyone was telling me the exact same things that they told me in Ukraine, that it was about rights. Mm -hmm. And I kind of felt like they wanted to look at me and be like, it's about rights, stupid. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, how about the economy? Tell me more about the economy. And, And they were saying the same things as the Ukrainians were that experienced the Orange Revolution. They were saying My rights were violated. Basic human rights were violated. Um, I was scared that this is going to be the return of the military junta for the older generation. I was scared that we were going to bring back Soviet-style authoritarianism, right? So they repeated a lot of the same things that mobilized them. Or they said things like, I understood that it didn't matter who I am or where I live, but all of us are open to the repression of this government, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or all of us are open to the moment when the government starts to take away our rights. Mm-hmm. So they kept saying that. So I had to say, okay, well, I guess it's similar. And and then the process, different processes of, you know, that friends and family networks are more important. Mm-hmm. So you you're more likely to trust information passed on from your friends or your family members, and your friends and family members are more likely to convince you to, you know, and you're t- texting or talking on the phone, like, so what are you doing after work or after school? I don't know. I was thinking of checking out the protest. What do you think? Should we go to the protest? Yeah. Okay, why not? That is m- more important than seeing a flyer somewhere, mm-hmm. right? So those kinds of things seemed very similar, of course. There's so many differences. Um, yeah. But uh, we see this over and over again. And this is a chance to bring in Venezuela very quickly. Mm -hmm. Because since 2014, there have been mass protest waves in Venezuela and students, university students specifically were in 2014, were very much involved in organizing the protests and participating in them. And the violence against the students there was, um, as I mentioned to you earlier, was Mm -hmm. striking, you know, shooting point blank in the heads of students in the streets or students running away from... Militia forces and just begging people to let them into their apartments so that they don't get shot—like mm-hmm. unbelievable stuff—that we barely heard about here in North America and Europe. Uh, the processes of, of of a lot of the mobilization are similar, and when people talk about their mobilization, they talk about in very similar about rights about a duty to defend democracy in, all the, in Ukraine, in Argentina, and Venezuela. They tend to talk about the duty to defend. And um, also this, like, I have no other options left. Yeah. Right? And that's something that the Ukrainians, the Argentines, and seemingly the Venezuelans also tell us. So I think it's that, you know, what brings people to risk their mm-hmm. lives. It is when you have a strong feeling of duty. You're you feel that basic human rights are infringed upon, and then you think to yourself, "Well, what else do I have available to me as an option?" Yeah. And then you do this, and um, you hope for the best, mm-hmm. right? And you hope that the worst will not come to be.
2: Yeah. yeah. It's going to be interesting because that's obviously in kind of a very in, in Venezuela in particular, is at a critical moment. The United States is deciding whether we're going in. There's Russian planes there with military soldiers. So it's going to be, we're definitely at a moment where Venezuela's, the Venezuelan situation could change so quickly that keeping my eye on it right now, (laughs) Mm. it's kind of those scary moments in history where I, he, we're so kind of detached from that. We feel so helpless and kind of impacting that. And we were talking earlier. It's kind of like we try to influence change with our policymakers, but there's such a vested interest with our foreign affairs that <laughs>
0: it's like, it doesn't matter what we
2: think at some
0: point. So it does matter what we think. Yeah. it does matter what we do. It really does. It really does, though. Yeah. Right. It does. I mean, that is in in Ukraine. That is literally what happened. Yeah. It matters what people think and what people do. Yeah. So. Gotta keep pushing them. <laughs> so I guess uh, to kind of like
2: bring this all full circle is we've had the election of Zelensky mm-hmm. um, this last or this, was it this last weekend?
1: Yeah, it was. Was it? Yeah, is.
0: It feels like it's, so I, much yeah, has happened. Yeah, yeah. I know. yeah. <laughs> The world has changed. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, but I kind of wanted to get both of your perspectives on I guess what this this vote means and what it what we should expect because they've got in five to six months they've got their parliamentary elections as well um and i guess i guess we're trying we're all desperately trying to interpret what this vote meant (laughs) we all are yeah (laughs) (laughs) but i guess what your perspectives are and yeah um
3: i mean what i will say will be influenced by a lot of what what you've been saying about it um i think that this is more of a vote against Poroshenko than for Zelensky. like this is, mm-hmm. this is what Ola has been saying. I'm not going to claim. This is my, my original claim idea. <laughs> if, I mean,
0: if you don't believe
3: it, then don't say. It. <laughs> I very much no, I very much, I very much do believe it. Um, because he's kind of a like a blank page. like yeah. we, mm-hmm. he's not really been talking about his policies. Um, he's just been saying, "Oh, you know, we'll ask everyone, we'll ask everyone um so i think to a certain extent that's maybe enabled people to like project what they want onto Mm -hmm. him he's been making noises about anti-corruption and in his tv show his character um his character talks a lot about corruption and does a lot to kind of tackle corruption and reject this oligarchic system and that's corruption is a big concern for ukrainians so i think he's been playing on that um yeah, so it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens next. It's going to be interesting to see what the policies he comes up with are. Is is he going to rule by referendum? Is he actually going to keep asking people? <laughs> um, is he going to is he going to be using Instagram to figure all this stuff out? Um, we don't know. I think Ukrainian <laughs> politics is about to get even more interesting. Yeah, um, I think it's going to be it's going to be fascinating to see how he navigates the different expectations of people in the coming in the coming months and years because people have chosen someone who was not olig- an oligarch who was not a, a political figure and i think they're going to ex- people are going to expect a lot of change and whether that is going to be delivered is yet to be seen and how people will react if that's not going to be delivered is is remains to be seen as we've seen ukrainians are quite good at making their voices heard <laughs> Um, when their politicians are going the opposite way to to what they to what they want so yeah we'll see the tv show is it's it's interesting to watch the the tv show on netflix mm-hmm. if you haven't seen it to kind of see what i think ukrainians perhaps we had in keep mind plugging, no we know, probably shouldn't keep plugging netflix, his tv show <laughs> yeah but it is interesting to 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 get an idea of what people yeah. see when they what, what people imagine, mm-hmm. when they imagine him as present, it was quite interesting for me. He's quite big, he's quite an intriguing character, and I must I watched a couple of episodes. I was like, oh yeah, he seems like a good guy. Then I was like, no, Emma, be analytical. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, but I'll I'll, uh, I'll uh, say more. But you, you know,
0: <laughs> I mean, I don't want to keep plugging the show, but the <laughs> but actually, um, Kolomoisky's Uh, The TV channel he owns, this is a, Kolomoisky is a Ukrainian oligarch who is known to be backing Zelensky and Kolomoisky is part of this Dnipropetrovsk or Dnipro now clan, um, which is a political economic clan based around the oblast of Dnipropetrovsk, which I've been saying this is is an extremely stable um, element of Ukrainian politics for many years. This is an extremely powerful group in Ukrainian politics. Um, and this is a bl- book I am constantly plugging because Serhii <laughs> so hasn't received the acclaim for that book that he shouldn't. Such a great read, Rock and Roll in the Rocket City. Um, you know, this history of this closed rocket-building city is amazing and that it produces Tihipko and Yushchenko and Kuchma. And Zelensky. Um, but all that, so just a little background. But Kolomoysky, who owns this uh, TV channel in the days prior to the first round, was essentially just showing the show on the yeah. hour every hour with a little bit of that comedy skit show that Zelensky was running in yeah. between. So if you, as a PhD student yeah, at the University exactly. of Oxford... Can be like,
3: oh, this guy seems
0: cool. Yeah, then <laughs> f- clearly... You know, people watching the television show might also think that he's quite cool. And then you you get a little confused where reality begins yeah, and yeah, fiction absolutely. ends, right? And, you know, the this was a funny thing about the law because there's a clear law in Ukraine that mm, there should be no yeah. campaigning in the 24 hours prior to the election. Yeah.
3: Like the quiet um, period. The quiet
0: period. Yeah. Um and yet this wasn't campaigning because it wasn't official campaigning <laughs> material but it was the one of the main candidates playing president yeah. on television <laughs> we'll just show
3: this back to back
0: and that is a really funny thing that happened whereas you i, I wonder if the court should explore that further in the future mm-hmm. right? you know because that was clearly him campaigning in some way mm-hmm. i mean maybe they didn't know he was going to become candidate back when he was filming these shows and movie, but who knows? Who knows, right? it's an elaborate (laughs) conspiracy. Or, you know, (laughs) stranger things have happened. Um, But I think the main thing to remember is that all the things that you just said, well, we don't know what he represents Mm -hmm. and how is he gonna reconcile all these expectations from the citizens. And, you know, we were talking about, I think you mentioned a few days back about the the people who are young and educated that may have voted for him as well, Mm -hmm. right? And all these things, and how can that be the case? And, well, okay, there's a lot of this black box that we don't know, but it's important to remember that he, at least for now, represents this very powerful political group. And there's certain things we should expect from them, and there's a lot of this black box. We don't mm-hmm. know what's going to happen and how citizens are going to react to it. Yeah. Um, but the parliamentary elections are going to be very important because if you look at the results of the first round, that's more, more aligning with what the parliamentary outcome will be. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like I, I don't think uh, his party will be able to you know, anything can happen in the mm. next few months, but it, it doesn't look like his party would get a, a, certainly a majority. So if it stays, even the way it is, the constitutional setup, there's this division and tension between the presidency and the and the parliament. But it could be very likely that parliament tr- tries to push through constitutional reforms to push Ukraine to a more parliamentary system, which mm-hmm. I'm actually in favor of for various reasons. Um, and that might actually make him more of a figurehead than yeah. than anything. The future is unknown, and yeah. I think anyone who tries to predict the future is a fool. He's <laughs> a fool, I tell you. Yeah. But uh, there's some things we should keep in mind. This is not a new, the people who back him are not new in the game. Yeah. Very experienced, very powerful. And Poroshenko just had a like, disastrous campaign this year, focusing on all the wrong things. And hopefully there is a readjustment there on his side and other future opposition Mm -hmm. um, candidate Mm -hmm. sides. And uh, yeah, I think it's more more talking to the ordinary citizens that, you know, want the government to deal with corruption, but want the government to deal with the corruption that they face every day in everyday Mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. And I keep mentioning this, but I think it's atrocious that people die um, because they cannot pay bribes in the medical system or they cannot p- buy pr- <clears throat> privately various, like syringes might not be available in hospitals, right? Mm-hmm. to Like to have yeah. get an IV, you don't have a needle. Um, when my father got sick, we had to drive around town in Lviv, oh, wow. <laughs> which is a major city, and to find both the medication, the syringes, even the latex gloves to, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, if... The, and then you have to pay bribes along the way, maybe mm-hmm. to get it done faster. If this is the kind of daily life you lead, then, and the government's talking about something else, you're like, come on,
2: mm-hmm.
0: let's talk about the stuff that we actually, yeah. that makes our life tough. I um, think like there was
3: there was some great progress made in Poroshenko's reforms. Like yeah. he did not have a perfect term by any means, but a lot mm-hmm. of great progress was made in certain areas like decentralization. Yeah. Um, there progress has been made with some anti corruption stuff. If you look at the the transparency, the e declarations, things like that people have to do now. Um, there's interesting medical reforms being rolled out at the low like the very local level. Um, that that still how that goes still remains to be seen. But I think something you touched on is people needed to see more impact of these reforms on their everyday lives and mm-hmm. at the at
0: the ground level. Yeah.
3: And um that could have yeah, I think
0: refocusing attention to those things yeah yeah we'll see yeah no politicians sometimes think they know better yeah and you know Mm -hmm. tweet in the middle of the (laughs) night (laughs) or (laughs) something like that you know (laughs) y'all get to leave (laughs) (laughs) no i'm just i'm i didn't mean we we have an instagram president coming in in ukraine yeah Yeah. Um, That'll yeah, be interesting. So yeah, you were mentioning
2: referendums. <laughs> Those You can do Instagram polls now. That's <laughs> going to be decided. The, the Instagram quizzes. Yeah, you just they just used that, one. Yes, I did. You just <laughs> decided
1: your, fa- your Instagram, I guess, pattern now. <laughs> yeah, I asked about content. But yeah, I mean, I don't know if that can be harnessed as a tool to measure <laughs> anything.
0: But yeah. typically... Not the great, this is where my political science <laughs> yeah. methods teacher hat comes on, because those are polls of what your friends and followers think, not yeah, of yeah. generally, not right? the general consensus. But you, you can find out what your friends and followers thinks in those polls, why mm-hmm. not? But if yeah. we
1: hack into Zelensky's account and make him post in question.
2: <laughs> I have a question, just because... I feel like I need to ask this while you guys are here because I'm curious and we haven't been able to answer it. But I guess, what do you think the significance of Zelensky's posts being in Russian? Cause you've briefly talked about like mm-hmm. linguistics in Ukraine, but most of his posts, ex- almost exclusively until he posted about the, I guess the stadium mm-hmm. were all in Russian. Um, His show is
1: in Russian, His show is in
2: Russian, too. Mm -hmm. What do you think that means? Because they have these linguistic laws and what that's going to mean going forward.
0: (laughs) Sorry, that's a loaded question. No, it's not a loaded question. I think so. As the president of Ukraine, there is, you know, he is he should uphold the Constitution. And there is only one official state language in Mm -hmm. Ukraine, and that's Ukrainian. And he will be expected to speak in Ukrainian mm-hmm. unless somebody asks him a question in Russian. And even in those instances, he could choose to speak Ukrainian. Um, but it it will be his job to uphold the Constitution. Um, and he said he's going to support the language law that was just passed, mm-hmm. okay. which was indeed passed this week. So I think that, you know, he's not a president yet. Yeah. But that would be the expectation. Um mm. Ukraine is a multilingual country. Mm-hmm. On the in terms of everyday practice of language, so there's a difference between official state language and the laws around that, and now official um, languages, as laws around content on television and these kinds of things, and the language you use in your personal exchanges. And in that case, you know, the country is for the most part bilingual, mm-hmm. and some people are. Ukrainian speakers or Russian speakers predominantly, but most people speak both languages rather comfortably. Um, And the private experiences of language should not be mixed up with the official state Mm -hmm. um, experiences of language and what that means and where his duty lies in terms of that. So Mm -hmm. I think if he's posting about his daily experience of, you know, whether it's getting his... Teeth cleaned, I think one of your, uh, what didn't one of your politicians? Was it Instagram- who did that? Yeah, yeah. yeah, right. That was a little bit of a misstep, but okay. But if he was posting about his teeth cleaning in Russian, does that matter? I don't think so. Yeah. If he's making an official statement on behalf of the Ukrainian state, mm-hmm. then I think that would be much more problematic mm-hmm. for different reasons, yeah. right? There are, of course, people who disagree with me that think a president should only speak Ukrainian all the time. I think the country is a little bit more complicated in that way. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, the top three candidates were actually Russian speakers. Mm-hmm. Poroshenko was a Russian speaker. I mean, he became a Ukrainian speaker. Timoshenko, you can clearly hear in her accent if you know that, that she, is, she was a Russian speaker growing up. Um, they speak Ukrainian publicly all the time now, but yeah. there was a period in time mm-hmm. where they didn't, uh, And yeah. right? Um, so let's give him the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> he, he does have a hard time stringing sentences together at some point, <laughs> so maybe he needs to work on that as yeah, well. The debate yeah. was um, interesting. The domain, yeah, it was, in oh, was <laughs>
3: interesting how
1: he... <laughs> um, it. Was changed. Zelensky originally a Russian speaker, or did he... Add, um, did he grow, did he grow up speaking Russian?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think yeah, I think. But same with as I said, same with Poroshenko mm-hmm. and same with Timoshenko. Yeah. Um, so that's not that's not new. Mm-hmm. He he needs to work on it. There were some things that he got wrong. You know, some basic grammatical things. Um,
2: yeah.
3: But now he has a different
0: responsibility. I mean, yeah. as president, there's different expectations.
2: Yeah,
3: I and think. I, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I think one thing one thing though that it does show is. This whole narrative about Ukraine being divided between like pro-EU, like pro-Ukrainian, like Ukrainian speakers, and like pro-Russian-Russian speakers is 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 like blown out of the water now, essentially. But it was blown out of the water ages ago. But I think I think there's still a lot of people who don't know very much about Ukraine that still that still have these perceptions. I still very often, when I when I meet people who don't, who don't know a great deal about the country. Um, and they ask me questions, and they, I say, oh, yeah, I'm studying Ukrainian. They're like, oh, so there's a Ukrainian language. I'm like, oh, my
0: God. <laughs> yeah, but all Ukrainians know that there's a <laughs> oh, yeah. Ukrainian yeah, language. Yeah, all Ukrainians know, but I think, I mean, <laughs> but, for outside observers, yeah. it's,
3: it's, it's interesting. That's yeah. okay.
0: People get things wrong about yeah. other places. You know, I didn't know much about Texas before I came here, and Austin has blown <laughs> me away as one of the coolest cities I've been to. Yeah. So I think when you don't know things from experience, you have all sorts of visions of it. Yeah. yeah. And then, but but social science has now for a long time mm-hmm. shown, we're talking about like, you know, uh, Volodya mm-hmm. Kulik's work and Gwen Sasse's work mm-hmm. about language and regions. And for a long time, it was about civic identity, not mm-hmm. ethnic identity, strong civic unity in the country and growing. Actually, mm-hmm. Volodymyr Kulik um, has shown that quite mm-hmm. extensively in his work. Yeah. But other people have shown the same thing, right? So that there's a strong civic identity amongst um, internally displaced people. Yeah. Gwen has shown that. Um, uh, Grigo Papelikish and Graham Robertson have also shown that there's a strong um, identity with the homeland. So a strong civic identity. So the language story is really important to some people. Yeah. Um, but it's not the only issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... And it, I don't think it's the most important issue to the broad majority of the Ukrainian yeah. population. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't support the state language and and that we should hold our, not mine, but that they should <laughs> hold their politicians to account mm-hmm. if they don't follow the law, mm-hmm, right? Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's a little, it's, it's complicated. And everyone speaks surzyk on top of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we which struggled is with that <laughs> mixed language it's yeah. using russian words and ukrainian grammar plus something else
2: yeah yeah mm-hmm. and then there's
0: regional variations, variations. yeah i yeah. love the poltava version actually poltava rap artist gosh i forgot his name right now i wish i could tell you guys so you could all google it he, he's he's really cool but he has his own ver- well it's a poltava version of um and it's if you don't know Poltav and Serdych, you have a hard <laughs> time following. <laughs> but yeah.
1: that was one of the coolest things that, that I think I I learned in this class. was like a random thing, noting that um, dialect continuity across the mm-hmm. country and how it's not so clearly split, and how we have to take in all these factors into account when when thinking about something like language policy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Well. Um, Please correct me if I get things wrong on this because
3: I'm recalling a course I did quite a few years ago now. But it's very interesting the way that um, like the official version of the Ukrainian language came about because Ukrainian language was oppressed a lot under the, the Russian Empire. Mm-hmm. And then you have in certain areas of Ukraine pockets of these these writers basically um, starting to write in Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. And that was seen as quite um I don't know if it's quite right to say a political act, but for a long time Ukrainian was seen as kind of by the Russian Empire, by like, is this like vernacular language, Mm -hmm. right? Like, this is something people speak. It's not necessarily something that is worthwhile of like literary creation. And you know, we have our Pushkins and these kind of people. The (laughs) Ukrainians, for you people, like in the villages, to speak. Mm -hmm. And then you have these writers
0: creating these works. Yeah, Ivan Franko. Yeah, who else?
3: Um, This is a a test map. Lesia (laughs) Ukrainka. Lesia Ukrainka. Amazing. Um, Feminist. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, Lesia Ukrainka is one of the people that, like got me really interested in, in Ukraine. I'm and, writing down my reading yeah. list. <laughs> so um translated yeah, and, into English as well. Oh, yeah. Good. Um, and it's really interesting how and really this was and this is, is this is an, <laughs> this is the, my reading of it is that this is quite an important part of you, the development of like a Ukrainian national identity is this rise of the language in in these like in, in the literature and like Ukrainian language literature. Mm-hmm. But then when as the language was starting to become formalized as you guys spoke about there's very different like dialects and like variations across the country essentially it was like the literary Ukrainian from like one group of 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 people right that was kind of elevated <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to make a mistake because this is quite rusty but um it was kind of like and then the the kind of lit, r- written Ukrainian from like one particular area where a lot of these um writers were based that was kind of like chosen as like the official version yeah. if that makes sense um is it's kind of what I remember. So I it's interesting. There's yeah. still a lot
0: of variation. I think there's some different interpretations yeah. on what you've just described.
3: <laughs> but um, it's one interpretation based there on is this idea of
0: literary Ukrainian. And, you know, some of the Ukrainian I speak um, is from parts of Western Ukraine. And, you know, I love going to places like Ivano-Frankivsk and Lviv where they say the words that I grew up with. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas sometimes when I say those words in Kiev, they're like, "That's not Ukrainian." <laughs> I'm like, "Yeah, it is." Everyone in Lviv and ivano Frankivsk use those words. So there is that, you know, the different kinds of Ukrainian, and uh, yeah, and the- that
3: makes learning Ukrainian fun.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but that's with every language. Yeah, you true. just called a ladybug a ladybird today. Oh yeah. By the way, a ladybug in England is a ladybird.
3: Oh so (laughs) I was so LBJ's wife is Lady Bird Bird and I was thinking about she was she had the nickname of A ladybug. Yeah.
0: And 15 years in the United Kingdom and today in the car is when I understood that it's a completely different word in the country where I live. So language is fun everywhere you go. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) that's
2: fascinating. (laughs) You learn something new. I think linguistics is something that I wish I had taken more of. I mean, there's still, I still have time, right? (laughs) We're still constantly students. But yeah, I think that would be interesting, especially. Because we, we we're definitely not focusing on linguistics with our project, but I mm-hmm. feel like it would be something interesting to discuss. Right now, I think we're heavily focused on students are very focused on the EU and whether or not the EU is about to split into pieces. <laughs> like Brexit is like the biggest thing that they're bringing up right now, and I think yeah. that's well. That was, I mean, <laughs> that was
3: our everyday yeah, life. Yeah. Yeah. We just had the, the parliament was on Easter vacation and it was really nice just <laughs> to hear about it for a couple of weeks. It was actually very interesting. I mean, this is a while ago now, like when I was last time I was doing my interviews in 2017, people were asking me about Brexit because it was still quite fresh then after yeah. the vote. And people were like, but why? <laughs> why did you vote to leave? We just started a protest to try and move towards you. Even yeah. worse, I
0: mean, people were saying, do they understand that we risked our lives? Yeah, exactly. Because And then, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, yeah, it's It's very,
3: yeah, very different perspectives. Like someone, whether this is true or not, it's one of these urban legends, but, um, I was talking a lot about flags with people, and I was speaking to some young Ukrainians, and they were saying, like, "You do like, as far as we we're aware, this is the first time people died with European flags in their hands." Whether whether or not that is like literally true is yeah. is is is
2: a
0: defending side. a U- yeah. all European yeah. ideal, yeah,
3: exactly. But like this this idea that Ukrainians were willing to sacrifice so much for this idea, and then British people are like, "No, thank you, goodbye." Yeah,
0: <laughs> I mean, there's different things driving all these things. Yeah, but- yeah, absolutely. But I don't think all of the EU will break apart. Yeah. Um, I keep having a look at all my British friends thinking, oh, I don't know, I, I'm i a, you know, I'm an e- EU citizen mm-hmm. living in the UK yeah. um, for the last 15 years. So for me, this is a very personal experience as mm-hmm. well. And so trying to reconcile the fact that my, you know, my friends in living in my homeland fought for this, you know, people risk their lives for this, and here, I'm part of a community that I consider home that wants to leave mm-hmm. the EU. Um, mm-hmm. We have to respect, I think, democratic processes. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean yeah. that I won't fight for the other side, the, the side that I believe in, right? That's but, your democratic right, there. <laughs> yeah, it's a, but it's it is it is it is yeah. tricky to think about. Um, yeah. But I think the average, the people that you are speaking to yeah. um, in Ukraine, the average person in that age group, uh, in the average person, not all, in in the UK would also want to stay in the EU. Mm-hmm. So I think they have a lot in common. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I think that's going to be interesting, and we're so excited to go. And if you're there, we have to connect. If we, <laughs> yes. if we happen to be in the same place this summer. Yeah, i will be in Lviv for a while. <laughs> Actually, I don't know when we yeah we'll have to touch base about that but I wanted to say thank you guys so much for thank about you. everything yeah, and yeah giving you. us the opportunity on this beautiful Austin day um to just keep you guys inside on Longhorn day we just learned <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you guys get to see Texan culture <laughs> the best.
1: yeah thank you so much for coming on the show it was it's, it's been so much fun thank you thank you for having thanks us thanks for having us the views
2: expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Thank you for listening. Please visit slavxradio.com for more information. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.